Hey, we're back this and every Saturday we talk uh, and come to you with conversations here at Ed Stetzer Live. My name is Ed Stetzer. I am dean and professor at Wheaton College and back from that. So, you know, I've been broadcasting the shows from the UK, teaching the Wycliffe Hall at Oxford, living over there. Well, uh, I am now officially back. And of course, I had to be back in time for Christmas to be with my family and hope you are going to do the same. Of course, this show is actually broadcasting on Christmas Eve. Saturday is Christmas Eve this year. So um, it's interesting. We probably have more listeners than normal, so welcome. But for those of you who are joining us, we are normally, I mean, the show is actually called Ed Stetzer Live, so we're normally live, but we're actually not live today because we actually, well, we love our team and we love our wonderful Moody Radio family, and we didn't say to them, we insist that you come in on Christmas Eve uh, there with their families and more. So we have pre-recorded this program for you. And not surprisingly, not shockingly, the topic, you guessed it, Christmas itself. So that's what we're going to talk about today, Christmas, what Christmas is about, why it matters, and more. And so we're going to, hopefully for you, you are already enjoying some of the festivities, or maybe your family is already together. If things have planned the way uh, the way I have planned them, uh, we have all our daughters, we have three daughters together uh, for Christmas. But so <laughs> you might be surprised to know that there is an Oxford handbook of Christmas. And so, and I'm not just saying that because I was living at Oxford the last few weeks and months. Last year, we had the same amazing guy on to talk about this. I think it was last year, might have been the year before. But he has written actually something called the Oxford Handbook. I should say edited. He has edited the Oxford Handbook of Christmas. And like, who knew that there was an Oxford Handbook of Christmas. And so we're going to talk today about, well, we're going to have to make you, I'm going to announce you and pronounce you one of the world's leading experts on Christmas. Matter of fact, you could be Santa Claus with the, well, we'll talk about that as well. We've got, we've got lots of conversation to have. So well, thank you for joining me. Let me, actually, let me do the full introduction of Dr. Tim Larson. He's the McManus Professor of Christian Thought and Professor of History at Wheaton College. We're recording that here right in the basement of Billy Graham Hall. He's an honorary fellow of the School of Divinity, University of Edinburgh, honorary research fellow, School of Theology, Religious Studies, and Islamic Studies, University of Wales. I could go on and on. Lots of amazing things. And he's my friend. And so that, we won't put that against him, but it is good to have you on the show talking about Christmas. I'm very glad to be here. And I say you're my friend too. Good, good. Let's do it. We take that. Okay. So, so Christmas, why? I mean, it's just funny to me that there's even like a handbook on Christmas, because everyone sort of knows what you should do. You should, I mean, there's rules. There's, <laughs> it's in Second Opinions, chapter four, verse 11, that, for example, you don't put your Christmas tree up until the Friday after Thanksgiving. That's the proper time to put your Christmas tree up. That you open one gift tonight, it's Christmas Eve, you open one gift tonight with your kids. And I don't know where, I mean, these are just things that, that our family does, and then Christmas morning, you wake up. Um, but it wasn't always this way. So take us all the way back. And help, but you're a history professor as well. But take us back to the first Christmas. What would that have been like? And how would the Christians, maybe a few decades later, seen Christmas itself? Yes. So, yeah, you, yeah. And part of what makes this exciting is that so many um, stories are out there about Christmas. A lot of them are urban legends. A lot of things that people think they know about Christmas isn't actually true. So, that partly gives us the uh, digging into it. And then, you know, if I start where you began with, you know, why do this? Um, part of my reason is because Christmas is so accessible. People love Christmas. Mm -hmm. People who are uh, not churchgoers, people who don't self-identify as spiritual or whatever, they love Christmas. 
And yet I could do a book that would hook them on that. It's been the best-selling handbook uh, in, in the Oxford religion list. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, how fascinating. Yeah. You're like a Christmas rock star. Exactly. It's a it's, Christmas it's, miracle. <laughs> exactly. It's been going great. <laughs> but yet in that, I got to like just do a straight-up chapter on who is Jesus Christ. A straight-up chapter on, you know, what does the Old Testament say about the coming of the Messiah? A chapter on what does the New Testament tell us really about the birth of Jesus? Uh, so I, I blended together both the traditions that people think about, uh, but also a lot of the biblical and theological content so that people could kind of go deeper in understanding um, what, where this story comes from and what, it, what it's celebrating. To get to what you what you first said, I did give you a lot of questions in that. First yeah, well, I, I kind of I kind of took your more. preamble and turned yeah, it into good. a question. There you go. Uh, it, you know, it became very natural um, in the early centuries of the church to try to mark the key moments in Christ's life and in the salvation history uh, with a church celebration. And so, obviously, Easter is the original one. In some ways, Sunday every Sunday is a mini celebration of Easter that Christ rose on that day. That's why we worship on Sundays. Um, but uh, Pentecost is another one, and then of the big three, uh, the other one is Christ's birth. And so it became pretty um, early on that there was a desire, like some time in the year, every year, let's just focus on this great event in salvation history, um, do a sermon on it, celebrate it, make it part of our life as a church. Okay, so so we mentioned Easter, and of course that was in some ways, you know, tied historically to the Jewish calendar. So there's ways to date that in ways that there weren't to date Christmas. Um, so but take us back to that first Christmas, which, I mean, I guess probably most of our listeners would know it probably wasn't in the wintertime, those, or I mean, not December 25th, those kinds of things. So how did the, let's think of the Christians in 110 AD. Yeah. Would they be thinking, and I, I don't need you to like specifically cite the document sources, but what would they be thinking about Christmas? Would they even be thinking about Christmas as a major? Today, it's the biggest celebration in the world, right? I mean, yeah. Christmas itself is. Totally. But 110 AD, where yeah. would it fit in the priorities of Christians? Yeah, it, it, it's sort of like uh, the canon of the New Testament to mm -hmm. me. So you end up with, you find various church fathers who will list uh, books of the Bible, or they'll list the canon. The canon would be the the, the way you know, Christians have. Well, good. Yeah, which okay. specific books are in, in right, our New Testament? So when you you know obviously at the beginning at Pentecost they hadn't been written yet. You have apostles and those associated with them writing them, and those getting disseminated across the entire Roman Empire and farther, and Christians recognizing them. But what's interesting as a historian when you read, it's like they just refer to something. Here is the letters of Paul, or here is Hebrews. Um, and they're referring to it because it happens to come up in what they're, what they're discussing, what they're preaching about, but they're not telling you when they first discovered that or when they first got a hold of that. You're just seeing it show up. So that's what happens. Um, it's very clear in um, the late third century that you have Christmas, but nobody's saying, we just started doing this. Right. You're just getting a glimpse of how they're worshiping. So by the time we get to the, you said late third century? Yeah. So 110, maybe not yeah. having this conversation hard, yeah, as much. It, yeah, it's hard to um, know. And then the begins begin to form, we begin to form a church calendar, things of that sort. So Chris, or the celebration of Christ's birth begins to be mentioned in the late third century. And do we know much about, is it is it yet... Is it yet in December? Was it dated? Is it, yeah. just, is it celebrated? Tell us about that. So, um, yeah, there are other um, theories. Uh, in the Eastern Church, they stuck longer with uh, January 6th. Mm -hmm. um, so still today in yeah, some places. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that gets into really complicated things about which calendar you're using. Mm -hmm. So sometimes uh, January 6th today is our December 
um, 25th in their calendar. Right, you know? right. And so, so, um, but yeah, those are the two um, main dates that were used. Yeah, if you go to uh, Jerusalem around Christmas, they actually have, you know, the different groups celebrate Christmas at different times. Okay, so so was then it, because, you know, we, we all hear December 25th, this Roman yeah. pagan festival that replaced. Yeah. Talk to us about that. Yeah, no. Um, historians today think it's it's the opposite. There, there is no record of a Roman celebration of the sun on December 25th until after there are very clear records of Christians celebrating Christmas on December 25th. Because that's kind of like, I mean, if you were to talk on a secular, you know, maybe even an anti-Christian show, that would say, look, it's just it's just a replacement of this. So it's actually historians have moved to, well, I don't know if they were there, but they moved away from that if yeah, they were. Yeah, so, so what we know is there's no record of that. That celebration of the sun, but there is a record of Christmas earlier, and so now historians are saying it looks like maybe the pagans were actually trying to have an alternative to Christmas rather than the other way around. Interesting. Um, but even if the, if it was the other way around, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, the fact that that you're taking a day when people are off of work and you're wanting to turn it into a Christian celebration because people are off work, that, there's nothing you know sinister about that. That's mm-hmm. a natural and good idea to do. Okay. So so, but I would say that uh, pastors. Uh, everywhere will probably say, or a lot of pastors will probably point out, that this probably wasn't December 25th, that shepherds are not out watching their flocks at night in, in the winter, in the deep of the winter. That's, you know, the winter solstice is just a few days before that. Is that true? Is it probably not around the deep of winter? Um, the, the, the original, I mean, with the Yeah, I, I totally follow you, the, the question. Yeah. Um, I, I assume that Christ was not actually born on December 25th. Okay. I think that would be a, a surprising coincidence if that was true. Um, there are a few people who think that, um, but I don't. You just, you just ruined Christmas right there. I want, to, <laughs> I want to tell people, turn off your radio, because you know your kids are listening. No, so, but historically, probably not. Probably not. And uh, I, I mean, it, it, we don't really know. So it's just like we just have a record that they're already celebrating it rather than them starting to celebrate. They also don't give a reason why it's on that date. Uh, my own view is that it is tied to the solstice. And I think that's for theological reasons, uh, that the light has come into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. Interesting. So, Just for people to know, for solstice would be December 21st, which is the darkest day of the year in the Northern Hemisphere, the least sunlight. So theologically, the light coming makes sense. Yes. And what, what you're saying with that theologically is from now on, the light gets stronger and stronger. Oh, interesting. And so the light has come into the darkness. The darkness could not overcome it. Interesting. Um, so I think that's the reason. That's interesting. Okay, my daughter was born on the uh, summer solstice, so we actually very much solstice-oriented family in the midst of this. By the way, if you when you since you are listening, remind you that we're not taking phone calls because this is pre-recorded. But also, kidding aside, uh, we are not going to. Uh, if you're driving, listening on the radio, we're not going to ruin. Uh, you don't need to worry about your kids being ruined by some specific detail later on. We're going to talk some about Christmas traditions. We'll talk about those, but don't worry. We're not going to. We're not going to under, under undermine whatever oh, direction you go. Can I just carry yeah, on with, with the solstice bit? Yeah, oh please. You know, in, in Genesis one, it actually says that one of the reasons why God created the sun and the moon was to mark out the sacred seasons. Sure. Uh, it's uh, there in the Jewish uh, festivals that are part of the Old Testament. Um, that they're they're tied to different phases of the sun and the moon. So I, I think sometimes there are some Christians who nervously think that somehow pagans have a monopoly on solstices. Um, but no, this is something that God created. He created it for this very purpose that we would mark time. All cultures, whatever their ideology or culture or uh, religion, have used the sun and the moon to mark time because it's the only way you can do it um, you know, in less advanced societies. 
So that's a natural thing that we shouldn't be worried about. It's, it's part of God's creation. Fascinating. Okay, so we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Tim Larson in just a moment. We're talking about the his, his I guess it's, I mean, it's a not, usually we have someone, it's a brand new book, but this is a book that just keeps coming. The conversations just keep coming around this because it's so closely tied to the idea of Christmas. The book is the Oxford Handbook of Christmas, and uh, and folks, folks seem to be enthusiastic about it. Strong reviews and more, and it's the currently best-selling, you know, the best-selling book at Oxford Press forever is actually the Schofield Reference Bible. I, knew, fact, I know. do know that. Yeah, okay, we're going to continue our conversation with Tim Larson in just a moment. We're talking about the Oxford Handbook of Christmas. As believers in Jesus, we know our citizenship on earth is actually temporary, but the days can be challenging navigating a world in cultural decline. A.W. Tozer brings help and encouragement in his book, Culture, Living as Citizens of Heaven on Earth. He tackles the how-to of confronting and battling worldliness while we live in anticipation of heaven. Be better equipped to take on each day. Read Culture, Living as Citizens of Heaven on Earth. Your copy is at moodypublishers.com. Hey, we're back at Stetzer Live. I'm actually here broadcasting from Wheaton College with my fellow Wheaton College professor, Tim Larson. I'm actually looking over your your book list, and um, uh, the, I have the Cambridge Companion to Evangelical Theology, and that we published in 2007 with, with our colleague, Dan Trier. That's right. Um, and then, uh, I mean, it's kind of a mix of things that people, like the slaying God, anthropologists in the Christian faith, uh, uh, the the people of one book, the Bible and the Victorians. You're such a fascinating writer. Um uh, every leaf, line, and letter, evangelicals in the Bible from the 1730s to present. So, all, and that's your most recent book, is that? That's right. Okay. And so that's called Every Leaf, Line, and Letter, Evangelicals and the Bible from the 1730s to the present. And then uh, one just had to mention, because I love the title of your, I think you're, yeah, Friends of Religious Equality, Nonconformist Politics in Mid-Victorian England. <laughs> the level of specificity of your brilliance is amazing. And I work with people who are consistently smarter than me at Wheaton College, and one of the things I love. Um, we're talking today about um, about something I think just everyone wants to know more about. The Ox- It's the Oxford Handbook of Christmas is the name of the book. It's part of the Oxford Handbook series. Okay, so we were sort of, right, right after we took the break, you and I talked a little bit about dates. Because I don't know, I've just been kind of convinced that it makes more sense that this is a spring uh, thing, and 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 so you know, we did say that it's most likely. I mean, you might be tied to around the the winter solstice. You mentioned the theological light picture there, but even if it was, it's probably not just statistically on December twenty fifth because if it could be December twenty first or whatever. So, I mean, if we're missing the date, I mean, isn't it like bad to not know somebody's birthday? I don't, I don't want people to miss celebrate my birthday. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I guess the, uh, the other way around is to say, when is a, 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 a optimal time to celebrate? So um, the, the downside with your theory that it's in spring is that we already have Easter in spring. Yeah, right. And so you're kind of bunching everything up. Uh, so, for example, lots of holidays are like this. You just said you've just come back from Oxford. Um, there's an official holiday in Britain called the Queen's Birthday. Mm-hmm. We know when the Queen was born, but it's not on the Queen's birthday. <laughs> it's actually quite a few months away from her birthday. Yeah. It's it's the right time to celebrate, not least because the British have very few opportunities for good weather, and they're trying to maximize when that is. Um, we often talk about President's Day, but in federal law, that's called Washington's Birthday, but it never lands on Washington's mm-hmm. birthday. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day very rarely lands on his birthday. 
Uh, even Easter itself, obviously, because it's always on a Sunday, um, it's not going to land on the same date every year. And so sometimes it's, you know, maybe it's hitting the day that actually was and other days it wasn't. So yeah, I have no doubt at all that we, the church has just picked a time in which we want to make sure every single year we really get the meaning of Christ coming into the world, of the incarnation, of God being with us, and the importance um, in terms of the spiritual formation of people, that we think about this every single year. We understand the gospel story and what it really means, who Jesus really was, mm-hmm. is the key that's happening there rather than um, a kind of antiquarian interest in what was the precise date, which right. we don't know. But I do want to know. Yeah, but, well, you know. it'd be fun to know if we could. <laughs> but in the list of questions when you get to heaven, probably that won't, won't make the priorities. But, but okay, so then it does bring us into the idea, and you've already sort of mentioned that we're setting aside a time to look to the coming of the Savior, the first advent and more. Um, and that fits into the idea of a church calendar. Now, uh, the purists among us, we're not saying, Merry Christmas to one another. Uh, <laughs> they're they're still thinking. They're speaking of Advent, and then there's days of Christmas and things of that sort. So when does it become, and how does it become part of the? And if you wouldn't mind, explain liturgical calendar, and then talk about how this starts to show up in that. Yes. So the liturgical calendar ideal is simply that over the course of the year, we hit all of the major events in salvation history connected to Christ's life. Um, And so from his birth to the Pentecost uh, when he pours out his spirit. And yeah, again, the goal is for that to be uh, a way of forming people for life, that every single Christian has these things securely in their heart and their mind and their thinking, and you get another chance at it. Uh, I, I preach um, an Advent sermon, which is really a Christmas sermon because I'm not an Advent purist. Right. <laughs> You're asking about that. Um, every single year, I'm, I'm on um, the rotor to do it tomorrow in my home church. Mm-hmm. And I love that, mm-hmm. that every single year I get another chance to say the gospel. It is the, it's the clearest, you know, easiest time, uh, Christmas and Easter especially, are times when you just like get back to what is the gospel? What do I really want people to have deep inside them? Give me another chance to ring out this story. Mm-hmm. And that's and it goes when those you know most people most evangelical most of our listeners probably don't go to churches that follow liturgical. Well, everyone follows liturgical to some degree. They probably have Easter and maybe Holy Week and Christmas services. But when you fully develop this or you fully engage in the calendar, there's a series of Sundays of Advent and then there's you know Christmas. There's all these different things that flow out of that. So but it's kind of strange sometimes to I, I remember last last time I was doing this, I was at Moody Church. I was the interim pastor there at Moody Church. And, you know, it's sort of like, spoiler alert, we're going into Advent, but we all know what's going to happen. We all know what the Christmas thing is. But I kind of tell them, you know, let's, you know, I mean, uh, Fleming Rutledge talks about just, you know, Advent is this, is is not this cheery, peppy time. It's, mm. it, we need to engage in this waiting and this wanting that's there. Um, but it's, we're sort of reenacting this which seems strange to some people. Why not just walk in the fullness of the resurrection that Jesus uh, has been resurrected, the Spirit has been sent? Why go back and reenact these things for us? What does that do for us? Yes, so there's a rhythm to the Christian life that includes both things. So you could say, what you just said, you could say, why have the cross be be central when we have the resurrection? Can't we just skip the cross now and have the resurrection uh, and the truth is we need both, and both of those shape our lives, but you can't do everything at once, and you can't say everything at once. 
So where um, Christmas fits in and Easter fit in is that they are what the church called feast days. Mm -hmm. They're times of celebration. They're times of joy. They're times of kind of living out the fullness of life before the Lord with our friends and our families, our congregations, uh, through feasting, through gift-giving often. But there also are times of fasting and restraint and self-discipline and self-denial uh, in the Christian life, and that's how the church year was also made up, that you learn both of these things. If you're only doing one, you're not really living a full Christian life. Hmm. A Christian life is not um, just continually... Um, kind of suppressing our desires and trying to be as serious as we can and as disciplined as we can, but neither is it an indisciplined life of just like having whatever you want whenever you want. There are times to celebrate and there are times to show discipline and restraint. That's modeled um, in the Old Testament, in the lives of the Jewish people. Uh, it's modeled in the New Testament, in the lives of the early church, and it's that... Um, kind of way of living that's trying to be captured in this. Mm -hmm. okay. So Christmas Eve is today. We're, we're, yes. we're broadcasting this on Christmas Eve. So um, so talk to us a little bit about how some of the traditions developed, uh, and, and you, you'll be broadly, not just Christmas Eve traditions, but we, got, we have traditions at my home. I'm guessing you have some traditions mm -hmm. at your home. So when do we start to see some of these things historically? Because I'm guessing it was primarily a church experience by the late third century, but then it took on a lot of cultural forms as well. Yeah. And, and one of the fascinating things for me as a historian is what is the arena? What is the location for celebrating Christmas? And so originally, like you're saying, in the fourth century, it was very much the church. It was about a church service and um, for a long time, and that's still true in some traditions, Whatever else is going on, whatever day of the week it is, December 25th, you also have a, a Sunday morning church service to celebrate it as a church event. Um, is you, when you get into the medieval period and to the early modern period, it becomes much more of an outdoor communal event. Mm -hmm. So we see some aspects of that in other celebrations that we have today. So trick-or-treating at Halloween, um, you know, the 4th of July with, you know, outdoor kind of fireworks and things. A lot of that was blended in to Christmas for a long time. People would go in kind of big groups of people. That's some of the caroling is a bit about that kind of outdoor public thing with your neighbors. People would um, shoot off fireworks and guns. And um, it had a kind of much more of a kind of public outdoor feel to it. I think maybe, maybe our New Year's Eve also has a bit of that today. Starting in the 19th century, Christmas moves very much to be a domestic festival. It's really about being with your close family in a home, particularly focused on children and celebrating the lives of children in the family. And so you go from the church to the outdoors to the home. Mm. Uh, but again, the home is not, doesn't mean that you've gone secular. Uh, Passover is a domestic festival. Mm -hmm. It's celebrated in the home, but it's obviously trying to communicate deep spiritual meaning into people's lives. And that's what Christmas is, for, especially for Protestants today. It's more of a domestic festival, but that doesn't mean it's a secular festival. It's, it's only secular if you do not um, take the moment to um, bring in the story of the nativity and the gospel, and to make a, the celebration of joy of that part of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we do our kind of a tradition. Someone reads uh, Luke, uh, maybe one of the two, and and but but still, it is a family thing. So we actually now that the my daughter's old enough to have boyfriends. It's like, you know, we know that's our family, this part, you can, we, we'll do something later, you know, so we, it's very much, you know, the song, I'll be home for Christmas, um, which again is interesting. That That's an evolution over time. It wasn't always that way. 
Yes, okay. absolutely. It's different. Okay, what are other things that have, uh, we think of the Christmas myths, Christmas traditions, um, the ideas of Santa Claus, things of that sort. Um, when do those things begin to? I mean, we know Saint Nicholas was a real person yeah. who, who who punched a guy. You know, <laughs> I think I think that that's what I've seen. So maybe you can tell me that's myth if that's a myth. So tell us a little bit where some of those ideas come from. Yes, yeah, so with, without causing people to turn off the radio right now. So yes, just, just I, I totally, I'm totally with you. You're with me. So Saint Nicholas uh, was a fourth century bishop. Uh, it is said he was at the Council of Nicaea, and 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 he was so offended by the uh, heresy of Arianism, which means denying that Christ really is God, uh, that, that, he did, that he did throw a punch, which we're not recommending to anyone, uh, <laughs> but you can see memes, uh, I saw Santa punching Arius um, that are out there. Um, but what he's really um, kind of, how he captured people's imagination down the centuries was there was some very... Um, a very destitute family, a poor, a poor old man who had three daughters who were going to get sold into slavery because they didn't have any money at all. And what Nicholas does is he takes a bag of gold and just throws it in their window at night. And this allows uh, the first daughter to have a dowry and get married, and he does it again. And But by the third time, they're on the watch out, and so they catch him. Mm. <laughs> but the point is he's trying to do it anonymously. He's trying to help people, but he doesn't want credit for it. He just wants to help. And that becomes very much part of uh, the St. Nicholas tradition was how to give anonymously out of the sheer joy of giving. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay, good. We're going to talk more about that in just a minute. We're going to continue our conversation with Tim Larson, a fascinating conversation. We're talking about his new, well, it's not the new book. It's a few years old. We're talking about the Oxford Handbook of Christmas, and we're going to continue our conversation. Stay with us. We're we'll going to continue our conversation here at Ed Central Live in just a moment. Okay, we're back having a fascinating conversation with Dr. Tim Larson. He's uh, with me. We served together at Wheaton College, and um, which is actually at the time this is airing, shut down. This is the we do the week of shutdown, and and the students are gone, and who knows? It might be snow on the campus, the beautiful campus here at Wheaton College, and so we're thankful for a a break uh, in the academic year, and maybe that's hopefully for you as well. Hopefully, you are with your. Uh, family, your loved ones, hopefully your um, your your able to engage with baby friends and talking about some of these themes and ideas around Christmas. So we started talking about this uh, this Saint Nicholas yeah. figure, and but and, and where the origins were. But take us and and if, if I could, because I, I recognize that we could easily jump to you know the. Uh, the, the modern depictions, but there's different iterations of this as well. So keep walking us through history. You're an historian. Take take us to class, Dr. Larson. Yeah. So so always, again, certainly from the medieval period onward, there have always been magical or mysterious gifts that have shown up at Christmas time. Right. And lots of names are given to who must who left this gift, this mysterious gift. Uh, maybe it doesn't have a name on it, but maybe there's this figure out there who, who leaves gifts, and including um, St. Nicholas. So the name Santa Claus is just um, English-speaking people in New York City hearing Dutch-speaking people talk about St. Nicholas. So it's really the same name. It's them overhearing the Dutch way of saying St. Nicholas, and they start to copy them because it's a tradition that they know of and a story they know of in Holland, but some of the English-speaking people hadn't heard it. 
and they start using it as Santa Claus. But that's just a kind of another way of saying St. Nicholas. Okay. And and just for the record, as my, those are Stetzer named Dutch, those are my people. Yes. Well, I'm more Irish than anything. But anyway, so they start overhearing this. And then uh, the the modern picture, you know, I was at a, I was at a hotel recently and I mean, there was a guy walking through the lobby of the hotel uh, dressed in Santa Claus outfit um, with a real beard and a real, be- real belly. And so you got to know he was all in singing and doing this sort of stuff. That appearance comes about when and how. Other than yeah. some might think it comes about because it comes from the North Pole, drawn by reindeer. But where does all that come from? Yeah. So, so it's in the 19th century. Okay. Uh, again, so you have this really big jump where the name St. Nicholas uh, starts to become Santa Claus. But even before that, really very important is the poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas. Uh, Henry Clement Moore wrote that poem. He was actually a professor of Old Testament at a theological seminary. You just had to work that in. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want you to see that because yeah. here, here's here's the, the playfulness right. of, of, of a biblical scholar and a Christian mind. And so in that poem is when, when you first start learning details about, you know, some of them, there's, there's a little bit in um, um, uh, Washington Irving's stories, but, but uh, Clement Moore is telling you more about Santa Claus than you knew before about uh, reindeer and flying around and about coming down chimneys. But, the, the, you know, the chimney was, was often a place where presents would be put. And so, again, is, there's an older expectation that there's something mysterious and wonderful happening about gifts showing up at Christmas time. Mm-hmm. That's connected to to, to, to St. Nicholas uh, all the way back to the medieval period from from his first giving of gifts anonymously, as we said, by throwing these bags of gold money. And all, you can still see, see, you know, my wife went to Trader Joe's and got bags of chocolate um, coin um, money for, for, for our stockings because um, that, that kind of is, is a little echo back cool. uh, to, to St. Nicholas. Yeah. Um, and so then you start with Santa Claus being the new name, and then you get these um, new details that are coming in the, for the first time in the 19th century. We're learning about the reindeer, the flying, coming down the chimney, and then the North Pole. Fascinating. Okay, so um, so then these – well, I, I'm interested in you personally too because, um, again, we're, we're kind of being careful about how we say things. But like when I, when I was – when our kids were growing up, we didn't participate in holiday myths. We weren't mad about it. We told our kids not to be those people who might tell other people, but partly because we wanted to not tell our kids one thing and then tell them later that, no, that wasn't really true, but we still Jesus still is true. So that was sort of our, what did you do? Because here you are, this Christmas expert. Your kids are not little kids, but you probably thought about these earlier. What did you do? Yeah, I, I, I personally love the idea of the mystery, mm-hmm. and the mystery is the key to me. Okay. So it, 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 you're not giving... Um, full answers. You're just saying, isn't this interesting that this president okay. showed up? You're yeah. that. You're that. My mo- my mother did that. So you yeah. know, when when we when I began to disbelieve mm. certain Christmas myths, my my mother said that. Uh, see how carefully I say these things. <laughs> um, my mother told me that. Yep, you know, it's true. But there's always just one that just we don't know. It mm. just is, the, and it probably kept me for three more years. <laughs> <laughs> so I was all in. So so, but Christians can disagree on this. And and you mentioned you just briefly mentioned trick or treating Halloween. And and then it brings to mind, you know, the pagan origins of Christmas. We hear about Christmas tree. Uh, what, do, what do people call them? The bale bush, things of that <laughs> yeah, sort. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you know, we, we were in the, you, you know, you go to the UK. I was there. The, the you know, druid, druid, druids yeah. and all this sort of stuff. So talk to us about um, how would you navigate some Christian convictions 
about these issues. Because again, I'm we have a Christmas tree, but we didn't yeah. do the myths um, yeah, yeah, part of that. Yeah, yeah. So and so people kind of come to that place. How do you help navigate and advise people on those issues? Yeah, and 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 people have to follow their own conscience, sure. of course. So I would never want to push somebody towards something that they're uncomfortable with. Uh, but some of the things that they're uncomfortable with, they're uncomfortable with because of a misunderstanding. Okay, tell us. So let, yeah, let's do the Christmas tree one. That's a very clear one. Uh, first of all, it, it's what anthropologists call a natural symbol. Um, evergreens represent life even in the time of winter. And so it's, it's a kind of symbol of, of, of life. If you read um, even in Nehemiah, for example, when Jews are celebrating um, the Feast of Ingathering, it says, go into the countryside and, and gather evergreens and bring them back. It's just a natural way of celebrating. Which sounds like a lot more work than the artificial one I have in my house. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, God made it. God, God made evergreens. God made holly. These, these are not things that, if you imagine pagans somehow have a copyright on that, you don't understand mm-hmm. that God's the creator and he made these things. And they're a symbol in, in human imagination of life, even in this time when life is hard and difficult of winter. And therefore, they're a, they're a sign of hope. But even more specifically, again, just like I did with... Um, pagan celebrating uh, the sun, um, there's a very strong scholarly theory now uh, that it's the opposite of what people assume. Uh, the Christmas tree actually starts with um, mystery plays in the medieval period. The mystery plays were when you had these important uh, times in the church year, they would put on a play that would represent the story of salvation, um, people know some about passion plays as a kind of more common way that we, that, but it's like that. And so it would tell the whole story of salvation history, and it would begin with a decorated tree on the stage as representing the tree of life in the garden. And mm-hmm. then it would start with, you know, creation, uh, and then we get the fall, and you go on, you tell the whole story of salvation history. And so people would see these plays at Christmas, and they started associating Christmas with the tree. Uh, maybe the tree, after the play was over, would be put in the town center, and then people like well, wanted to have one in their home as well. And, and so it actually comes out of a celebration of the gospel story. Really? Is, is um, what many scholars think today, and I, I find that convincing. Uh, so got kind of to say it the other way around, a lot of secular polemicists in the 19th century made up these stories about things being pagan in order to try to take Christmas away from the church. Uh, a lot of them were, again, just urban legends that were flat out made up. They say, oh, that is really pagan, you know that. And, and if you look for the historical evidence, it's not true, but it's their desire to turn Christmas in a different direction. Uh, there were lots of um, uh, German polemicists who wanted Christmas not to be a celebration of the church, but to be a celebration of German identity. And so they thought, oh, if we can tie this back to uh, pagan Saxon um, rituals, then now it's about Germanness and not about Christianity. And they made up stories, just flat out made up stories in order to pretend like that was true. And a lot of Christians have believed them ever since. A lot of Christians, including Ed Stetzer, has believed <laughs> some of those. Uh, the idea of Saturnalia, you know, Christmas festival and, and you know, Druid Christmas trees. I mean, those are just widely repeated. But I think I think partly because, you know, Christians also know, and, and I want to talk more about this as well, that Christians also know that some of these things were actually... Uh, you know, banned by, you know, talk to us about about this times when Christmas was banned by Christians. Serious Christians didn't like Christmas. Why? Yes. So when you get to the Protestant Reformation, there's a big sorting that has to happen. What what needs to be reformed? What what has the church gotten off track with its traditions and assumptions? And there are some people who wonder if Christmas is part of what's gotten off track. Those same um, 
Protestant denominations in the end will decide, no, it's not. But there will be times when it seems like it is. And we'll be right back. But Tim Larson, the, we want to be pure. We want to love Jesus. We want to be like the Puritans. Tell us about the Puritans and their approach to Christmas. Yes. So the Puritans actually objected to Christmas. And this is part of that sorting of what is the false tradition that we need to get rid of and what is acceptable. And part of the key way to think about that is whether something has to be commanded in the New Testament in order to do it. Mm-hmm. There is a very, very strict view that a few Christians have that unless something is specifically commanded in the New Testament, you shouldn't do it in church life. Uh, The most extreme version of that, for example, doesn't use instruments in worship Mm. because there isn't a clear New Testament text for using instruments in worship, so they only sing a cappella. So the argument went, well, Scripture doesn't command us to celebrate Christ's birth. It doesn't give us a particular day to celebrate it on. Therefore, we can't do it. Uh, those same denominations, such as the Presbyterians, in the end decided that was not a appropriate um, reading of how to think about being biblical. So, for example, to me, how best explains this is the Puritans tried to stamp out Christmas by calling a mandatory fast day on December 25th. But that kind of shows that their argument doesn't work, because if the church is free to choose to call a fast day on December 25th, then it's also free to call a feast day on December 25th. What you're saying is this is a time that's in discretion of church leadership. It's not something that's forbidden by Scripture. Hmm. And that's... and that's So, so okay, I'm with you, and I'll, I, 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 we celebrate Christmas. On the other hand, I think it could use some tempering in some of these things. I mean, just the... The consumerism, and again, you know, we all have our own Christmas traditions. So, you know, for us, we one of the things we're very committed to is we um, we always make sure that the largest gift we give on Christmas actually goes to the Lord. We have hmm. something called the Lottie Moon Christmas offering in yeah. my, my yeah, denominational yes, family. Yes. So we we give yeah. to that, yeah. and 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 yeah. and we do that part of our Christmas celebration. Yeah. We. You know, we probably you know don't do as many gifts as many people. Maybe maybe because we're terrible. I don't know, but we're concerned. I'm concerned. Donna's concerned. My wife about Christmas being taken over by consumerism. We're, I mean, most people are concerned about that. But what what do we do about that? Yes. So again, there is a time to fast and a time to feast. Mm-hmm. So it is the right time of year to give gifts to celebrate, to have a feast. I think of like an analogy would be a wedding. A wedding is a good time to have a feast. It's a good time to give presents to people. But you're certainly right that anything can be overdone. And so there's too much um, excess, then it's wrong. But in the the balance of life, this is a special day in which we're we're giving uh, and we're feasting and we're enjoying. And that's what Christmas should be, but that should be within limits. And certainly there are people who um, go beyond the limits, who spend foolishly, I think sometimes are just like trying to buy love by um, not communicating love in their, with their whole person, but, but with saying, here, I've got you this big thing. Is that enough? Um, so it can go wrong, but it's not inherently wrong. And I love what you said ab- about giving. Uh, we have a wonderful Advent project in our church every year where we pay the school fees of uh, some um, children that don't have families um, in Uganda. Hmm. Uh, And um, there's a joy in that, um, to be able to, you know, it says about celebrating Purim in Esther, 
that you give gifts to one another, which I interpret as your social circle and your family, and then you give gifts to the poor, which I interpret to mean you let this flow out to people who have greater needs than your own social circle. Uh, and that's a, a, a really um, biblical instinct for how to celebrate, um, and we need to find ways to do that at Christmas time. Yeah, I, think. I guess partly I want to. There was an article a few years ago in USA Today that they they I think I think we yeah we did the research on it uh, for it, and then they, the USA Today wrote the story about it. Or uh, Kathy Grossman was a reporter. We'll link it in the show notes at Ed Stetzer Live. And I, I said in there, I'm quoting there saying the survey captures how, and this is my quote: too many people think Christmas is about a mall and not about a manger, unquote. You know, I was trying to be alliterated. Um, and, uh, and I would say, on the, on the upside, um, and Christians always look at the upside, as fewer people celebrate Christmas without knowing the story of Christ, with the opportunity to tell them about why Jesus came, why he lived and died, and ultimately that he rose again, changing everything for Christians, not just one day. was. And I, so I, got, I wanted to share, point people to the gospel in that article. Uh, but I mean, the the title of the article is is pretty strong. Uh, Kathy is very clever with their titles. Americans see more jingle, less Jesus in Christmas celebrations, and and that's not good. I mean, if Christmas increasingly has become a secular holiday, at some point, it can it can and maybe has for a whole lot of people overwhelmed any Christianness to it. So how do we not participate in what ultimately is the devaluing of such an essential celebration? Yes, I, I, I kind of see the glass as half full rather okay. than half empty. So, okay. so I'll begin with that. I, I think Christmas is the most, uh, the strongest point in the entire year when the gospel goes mainstream. Uh, I can listen to secular radio stations that are playing lyrics about our Savior being born, about um, for our sins being forgiven. People know those. Uh, it is the easiest time of the entire year to invite somebody to church who it doesn't is. go to church. That's statistically true. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And it's, it's accessible and natural. So I would say that Christmas is a great gift for people who are actually care about the gospel and want it to be um, known and to radiate out. Christmas is your ally in this. But you're absolutely right. Anybody can get off track, even Christians, who suddenly get caught up in lots of false expectations, uh, lots of things they don't want to be doing, don't have to be doing, but they feel like they're on some kind of treadmill of, I have to kind of just do all of these things to keep up with somebody else or because we always did them. Uh, and it isn't, it isn't necessary um, it, and it isn't needed. Um, people want to be with those they, they love. They want to be seen by them. They don't want them to like come up with the biggest gift card they possibly can for them. Uh, if that is somebody, then, then that's somebody that you actually don't really love and it's not really part of your life. If you really are truly in their life, then the biggest gift is that we're going to spend time with them over the holidays. That, that we're off work, we're together, I get to get to know you more deeply, I get to hear your stories. Uh, that's the Christmas gift. Mm -hmm. And and I love the gospel opportunity because, again, most people are hearing this uh, Saturday morning or early afternoon, and the opportunity tonight in Christmas Eve services is substantive. You know, my church, High Point Church here in the Chicagoland area, we're planning significant outreach opportunities. Um, you know, this this is a time to text somebody and say, hey, would you join me for Christmas Eve service tonight? And then maybe come over after or go out for coffee after. There's a gospel opportunity here. We at the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center uh, are deeply concerned about that. Christians are deeply concerned about that. And I would remind you that what Dr. Larson said is true, is that statistically, 
This is the most open time of the year. 47% of people, according to research we did years ago, say that they're more open to an invitation to church on this time than any other time of the year. It's the highest time that they're open to an invitation. So I want to encourage you to engage that. You're a theologian, historian, and all mix of those things. We've got about a minute left. Could you talk to us some of why the theology of Christmas matters so much? Not the not the wise men, not this, but yeah. what's going on in that incarnation? Yeah. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, his name is Emmanuel, God with us. That is the hope of the human condition, that God is with us. So into a dark world, and if the more you study about the Roman Empire, you know what a dark world it was, came the light, the Word, God himself. He was in the beginning. He is the Word. He is God. And he came to undo all of the destruction of sin, the devil, death. And so what you have with the angels breaking in, like, like, like you know, you, Christ himself said, the stones will cry out. You feel, you feel like this is so exciting that, that there's no way you can keep a lid on it. Angels have to cry out. Shepherds can't stop talking about it. Uh, magi go, go on a long journey to go see it. There's a sense of like, this thing has happened that we've been waiting for, that we've been longing for, that we've been um, patiently persevering in hopes of deliverance, and now it's arrived. Perfect, perfect. And what a great place for us to point people on this Christmas time. I know we're not Christmas purists here, Advent purists. We'll say Merry Christmas to you, Tim Larson. Thanks Merry for coming Christmas, on the program. Ed. And let me say Merry Christmas to my amazing team that works so hard this and every week uh, here to bring Ed Stetzer live to you. Uh, thank you to our behind-the-scenes team, Karen Hendren, uh, our engineer, Courtney Young. We have uh, Charles usually on taking calls, but we didn't take your calls today. But I'm thankful for the great team we have, Tulsi and others. Uh, tune in next week. I'm going to talk to Trillia Newbill. And we've actually been talking about engaging the Bible. Remember last week we had Andy Abernathy on, and Trillia is going to talk to us about how to begin a Bible reading pattern in your life. And yes, it'll be December 31st, and we're encouraging you to begin that the new year, December 1, uh, January 1, excuse me, is a great time to do that as well. So tune in next week for that program. And as always, you can listen to all these programs uh, go to edstetzerlive.com. The links to some of the things I mentioned are there, including Tim Larson's book and other books as well. But you might want to pick up the Oxford Handbook of Christmas. To hear today's program again, you can find it at edstetzerlive.com or on the Moody Radio app. And let me remind you, probably more listening today than normal, um, you can subscribe to this as a podcast. Listen to it whenever you want. Uh, more you know, if you're on a drive, whenever you want to do that as well. And remember... Ed Stetzer Live is a production of Moody Radio, which is a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Let me say thanks to uh, Moody Ministries, all the different things from the Bible Institute to Moody Radio and more. Merry Christmas to them, thanks to them, and Merry Christmas to you all. God bless. Have a great weekend.